Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Andrew Plump. Andy is the president of research and development and a member of the board of directors at Takeda Pharmaceutical. The company is 239 years old and based in Osaka, Japan, but it has been on an acquisition spurt in recent years and has been building strength at a new North American R&D headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Takeda doesn't get a lot of attention in the US, but it's one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies by revenue, ranking a little behind AbbVie and a little ahead of Bristol-Myers Squibb. Andy has an MD from UCSF and a PhD from Rockefeller University, where he got in-depth training in medical genetics in the late 1980s and early to mid-1990s. He went on to a long and distinguished career at Merck and Santa Fe before joining Takeda in 2015 to spearhead a strategic reboot of the company. In this conversation, I asked Andy about the past few months of repositioning the company to fight COVID-19, particularly in its area of strength with plasma-derived therapy. Takeda, like so many big pharma companies, had to look in the mirror and ask what it had to offer on the global stage against this unprecedented threat. This was it. Takeda, like many of its peers, also moved quickly to a work-from-home policy in mid-March, put a bunch of clinical trials on pause, and started collaborating in new ways with its peers. A big part of Andy's job is making sure employees stay connected to each other and engaged in the mission while remaining physically distanced at home. Toward the end, we talked about the racial reckoning that has naturally followed in the wake of this pandemic. Andy, as a white male in a powerful position, reflects on some of the privilege that undoubtedly helped him along the way, whether he fully realized it or not along the way. There are some obvious things he sees that pharma can do to right some of the wrongs of history. He and I didn't talk at great length here about race, and we certainly didn't solve all the problems. But at a bare minimum, Andy is paying careful attention to what the protesters are saying. He's listening. He endorsed a heartfelt editorial from Ramona Sequeira, an executive colleague at Takeda, wrote on LinkedIn that he's, quote, committed to standing together with my colleague, Ramona Sequeira, to denounce racism and condemn violence. You can find a link to Ramona's article in the show summary on TimmermanReport.com. It's a start. Like a lot of people, I've despaired about this topic in the past, and I'm well aware that large parts of the audience tune out when it comes up. But damn it, I'm hopeful now, at least partly because of the openness I'm seeing among white people to stare injustice in the face and see it for what it is and say, this has to end. It's a start. I'll talk more extensively about this in future episodes of The Long Run. Now please join me and Andy Plump on The Long Run. Andy Plump, welcome to the long run. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? Good, good. This is kind of the standard question we all ask each other these days, right? Um, I guess the, the one way to start, Andy, where are you working from these days? Are you, are you at home? 
I am. And, and by the way, thank you very much for the opportunity to spend half an hour with you on, on the long run. I'm really looking forward to this, Luke. Answer to your question, yes, I am in the third floor attic. No windows, completely buried, working from home. Oh, wow. And how many Zoom meetings per day? <laughs> well, uh, w- so luckily very few, and that's only because we tend to use Teams, Microsoft Teams and WebEx. Uh, but my calendar is is quite dense with, with those live meetings, as I'm sure yours is as well. I have no problem with Microsoft Teams. I use it myself, too. Um, and I know you're a runner as well uh, because we've run the run together before on charity fundraisers. Uh, are you still running? And, and is that helping you, like, stay healthy and sane? Every day. I, so my, my schedule, I wake up around 5. I hang out with the dogs for a little bit. I do a little bit of work. I grab a cup of coffee. And then weekdays, I get on the treadmill. And weekends, I hit the pavement. How about you? Oh, I am keeping my mileage uh, up there. I I like to get outside for the running. That's the one thing I do to go outside. And of course, I keep my distance. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Good. Good. Well, well, listen, there's a toughness factor that differs a little bit between us. So 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 for me, the treadmill works and on a 70 degree day, the outside works. Fair enough. Okay, so Andy, I got a lot of things I want to ask you about. We've been through a lot with the coronavirus pandemic and and now, um, you know, this uh, racial reckoning uh, that every everybody needs to think about very hard, uh, but especially leaders of companies. So uh, we'll, we'll cover that later. But I think just for the starting out, um, maybe you know, not everybody in this audience is super familiar with Takeda and the size and scope of who you are and what you have there. You're a lot different company than you were five years ago. Maybe for just a minute or so, can you start by explaining like what, what do you have there uh, in terms of your assets and, and how did you... Uh, think about how they might be deployed uh, in this moment. Absolutely. Takeda is a 239-year-old company. There there are very few governments, uh, let alone institutions, that have lived as long as we have. And we've been an incredibly resilient company over two and a half centuries. About five years ago, six years ago, Christoph Weber came, the first foreign national to run Takeda and, and presently the only foreign national to lead a Japanese headquarter, um, major multinational company. I joined shortly after Christoph, and together we really started out to transform this organization and to really create uh, an innovation-based, R&D-driven global pharmaceutical company. And we've made just incredible strides over the last five years. In fact, in many ways, Luke, we are unrecognizable to the company that I joined. I'll tell you a very funny story because I joined and had a vision to really make Cambridge, Massachusetts, our, our cornerstone. And as I was starting to build out with my team in, in Cambridge, I remember talking with, uh, with a friend of my parents, you know, and so, son, where do you work again? And I said, uh, Takeda. And I was very proud of the new company that I had joined. And he looked at me and he said, isn't that that damn airbag company? <laughs> <laughs> So, so we've come a long way uh, since then. We're now a, a, we were a 30,000-person global company. We're now a 50,000-employee global company. And interestingly, we have as many employees in the Boston, greater Boston area as we do in all of, uh, all of Japan. About two-thirds of our R&D organization, which is about 5,000 scientists, is now based in, in Boston. And we're really, 
We're really a completely new organization. I actually was at our earnings in my attic at our earnings call two weeks ago and just had a chance to comment that 90% of our pipeline is new from where it was in the company that I joined in 2015. And that's not because we've launched a lot of medicines between 2015 and today. That's because we've really undergone such a, a dramatic transformation. Well, and when you joined, um, Takeda had uh, already the, the former Millennium assets that were there in Cambridge, very strong group of people. But then you went and acquired another company, Ariad, adding some oncology assets. And then the big one um, a year or so ago was Shire. Uh, again, so uh, you, you've added strength in rare disease, uh, gastrointestinal areas, oncology, and I think neuroscience is the fourth area of focus. Correct. Yep. Yeah. When this pandemic struck, now you, you run through that list of those four things, and there might not be an obvious place in which you looked around and, and would say, how can we help? Um, but, can, but there's more there at Takeda's 239-year-old company. Can you, can you walk me through sort of those early days of the pandemic, those first few days of March, when everybody was kind of scrambling in the pharmaceutical industry and thinking, okay, what can we do? For sure, Luke, and I'll, I'll comment back that you know when I when I joined, we 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 when we when we built our transformation, it was built on guiding principles. One of which you've already mentioned, which was a vertical therapeutic area focus initially in oncology, GI, neuroscience, and then with the acquisition of Shire late early early last year, we added a rare diseases capability, um, innovation focused, and then modality diverse. Um, interestingly, one of the areas that we don't talk a lot about is our vaccine group, which is a a group that's quite focused in uh, dengue predominantly. We have a dengue vaccine that's completed its phase three study, um, looks quite good. We hope to be um, submitting that towards the end of this fiscal year. We also had in our midst just an amazing leader who runs our vaccine group. His name is Va uh, Rajiv Venkaya. Rajiv and I parenthetically had trained together at UCSF. He was a pulmonologist and I was a, a medical geneticist. And so we knew each other way back when. Rajiv went on to uh, take on a number of different roles in, in the public health sector, including one very early in his career in the George Bush White House in the mid-2000s. And Rajiv wrote a file, uh, wrote a document that I think has been deeply filed and perhaps not accessed during the pandemic on for the bioterrorism unit that he was leading on a U.S. pandemic response. So we were quite lucky to have Rajiv here, here at Decada. And with Rajiv's leadership, we were really able very early on internally to recognize some of the severity of the, of the pandemic. And we, in fact, were one of the first uh, companies to really make the decision to shut down, which, which, Luke, as you can imagine, we have so many close friends in the ecosystem. As soon as we made that announcement, my phone was, was ringing off the hook and taking calls from our other R&D heads, from leaders of small biotechs, from people we run, we run with every year for our charity be, charity event. And the questions range from, oh, is this a Japanese thing? What day did you guys make that decision? It was in the second week of, yeah, second week of March. Second week of March. So you guys said, okay, we're going to go to work from home with, um, I mean, was this company wide? Was this just your area in, in Massachusetts? Well, we had, of course, already shut down in January in China, as, as, as all companies had. And we were we were creating a company wide mandate first around travel that came out in February, 
and then the decision to close down. We did. We, we, it was a global decision. We, we we shut down everywhere, but there were provisions that we put in place that allowed us regionally to really look at the regional trends and make decisions locally on how to manage uh, employees and whether coming to the workplace was safe. Okay, so there's a, but there's a couple things going on here. Um, you got to think about your employees and keeping them safe and how we're supposed to operate now um, under social distancing. That's one. But then the other is how can we make a positive contribution as a company with some vaccine capabilities? So are the, these conversations like happening like in parallel at the same time, pretty much? Absolutely. So we, we set out a, a, a series of guiding principles, at least at an R&D level. The first was um, employee safety. The second was patient safety, which led to then the discontinuate the, the pausing of a number of our clinical trials. The third was focus on our, our key priorities internally, right? So we had a few clinical trials that we felt that we needed to continue because the medicines were life-saving and there were no, no other options for patients. Uh, and then the fourth was really trying ultimately to do the right thing by way of COVID. And I'll, I'll come back to that because I know you want to talk a little bit about some of our efforts there. And then the fifth were, were in our laboratories, in particular with, with respect to some of the animal studies that we were doing, Know, very, maintaining very high ethical standards, just making decisions as to which of those studies to continue and which to stop. Because as you know, many of those studies are chronic studies. And we felt that it would be unethical to stop you know, chronic studies midway through because you'd have to sacrifice the animals. And so those were studies that we continued. Okay, so you need somebody that still comes in like in the middle of the night or whatever exactly. to like keep the keep the mice going. Got it. Um, okay, now um, you guys issued a press release. I think it was your first one related to the pandemic on March fourth, and this was about um, initiating the development of a convalescent plasma therapy. Now that's something people have heard a bit about during the pandemic, but not nearly as much as say antiviral drug development, like with remdesivir or the whole vaccine push. Um, why, um, what, what kind of difference do you think, uh, convalescent plasma therapy could make in in terms of in the big picture? So, so firstly, as you know, we have one of the largest plasma businesses and capabilities, uh, in the world. There are two or three companies that are essentially equivalent in this space. And we're one of them. There's an immense amount of infrastructure that's necessary to support such a business, and for all of us, all of the major players in plasma, the largest product is immunoglobulin. So you take plasma from, you collect plasma from um, healthy individuals, you fractionate that plasma and you can collect immunoglobulin. There's been a history with collecting what we call hyperimmune immunoglobulin. That's, that's immunoglobulin that's been concentrated um, from patients who are convalescent. In other words, patients who have been exposed to some um, foreign antigen, like a virus. There actually have been great examples. In fact, a decade ago, we did this exactly with the uh, avian bird flu, the H1N1, where we collected this um, hyperimmune immunoglobulin fraction. And we actually showed that it was highly effective in, in, in uh, treating the H1N1 infection. That, that infection never really grew out to a pandemic as COVID-19 has, so it never really really materialized as a, as a broadly used therapy. So we went back to that and actually in February of, of this year, early February, as we started to see where the trends were headed, we started to put together a plan to, to, to do just that. 
um, collect this hyperimmune plasma and use it to treat patients. We've been really, really intrigued by some of the data that's been coming out um, up until recently, uh, more anecdotal data about the use of just convalescent plasma. That's where essentially you don't go through the concentration process, but you lose plasma that's taken directly from someone who's been infected. Uh, more recently, there's now been some controlled data that's been published from China that suggests that in the setting of COVID-19 infection, these um, hyperimmune polyclonal fractions can actually be beneficial and help patients. Now, this sounds like um, kind of a, a logical first step. When you've got a brand new virus, people know very little about it. Um, but you do have some patients there in the beginning in China who um, recovered and their blood is just teeming with with all kinds of antibodies to fight off the virus. So you don't even need to know a tremendous amount <laughs> about the characteristics of the virus itself. But you, the, the immune system, Mother Nature, is showing us, right, what... Um, what works to neutralize the virus. And you can just like simply take that blood and, and purify it through that, what you call that concentration process, right? And come up with something that actually like pretty reliably, we think we still need to run the studies, but you know, pretty good chance that that, that should help people who you know, are hospitalized uh, and need some help now, right? Absolutely. And of course, there, there is an intermediate step. So, so Mother Nature is doing this experiment for you, but she, she could fool you, right? She, she could set you up in a situation where you have these patients that are developing these very high levels of anti-COVID-19 antibodies, but in fact, they're not clearing the disease because of those antibodies. They're leveraging some other aspect of their immune system. And so the intermediate step is actually doing the experiment where you take these antibodies and you go into a cell culture system and you ask the question in a very direct way, can this polyclonal fraction inhibit the infection of a cell with COVID-19. And of course, we saw that. And so now we're actually going forward and doing the experiment in, in patients. And of course, the, the piece about this that I find most exciting is the fact that we've seen signals of efficacy when, you look, when you're using convalescent plasma. So now, if it, it's very equivalent, we think. Of course, there's more in convalescent plasma. We don't think there's a lot more in that plasma fraction that's going to be helpful. And so the fact now that we're concentrating this immunoglobulin and we're able to give more back to patients, I think we're set up really for, for an a successful experiment. But we still need to run that study and that, that study will start shortly. Now, what kind of scale is possible here? Because it seems like you'd be supply constrained naturally by <laughs> the number of patients who are, you know, in hospitals, like able to contribute their plasma. Absolutely. And it's the question that we get all the time is how, how many doses are we going to be able to produce? So the, the first the first unknown is, is how many patients does it take to generate a single dose? That's, that's, an, that's still something that we need to figure out experimentally. Um, once we figure that out, we'll have a general sense for directionally. Is it thousands or tens of thousands of, of doses? Now, what's clear, given the scale issues that you're referring to, is that we're never going to get into the hundreds of thousands or millions of, of doses. So we don't anticipate that this would be a therapy that you would use broadly in a prophylactic setting. Um, but there, there may be some particularly high-risk prophylactic settings where you'd, where you'd want to use this. But we do think that this can be an effective therapy and accessible by patients who, who are hospitalized, the vast majority of patients who are hospitalized, depending on the ups and downs of the, of the um, pandemic. Now, I will, I'll mention one thing, which is an element of this that I think is quite progressive, and that's the, the partnership that we've, we've put together. It's called the COVIG 
alliance, the COVID alliance. And we've come together with some of the other large uh, plasma players to come together to, to have one single study, to have uh, a shared process for um, manufacturing the immunoglobulin and to work together to ensure that we're supplying needs across the globe and not just, not just here in the United States, but throughout the world. If you like listening to The Long Run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. For $149 a year, you can get a steady stream of exclusive, in-depth articles about the latest in biotech from me and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers. Discounts are available for companies and universities that have multiple readers. TR is supported by readers like you. Go to TimmermanReport.com subscribe for more. Now, this brings up that point of partnership and collaboration. And we heard a lot about this in the early days of the pandemic that, you know, this was just so big and fast moving and scary. And everybody in the scientific enterprise was rolling up their sleeves from academia to government to industry, kind of laying down your <laughs> your spears or your pr- previous rivalries or your intellectual property concerns or whatever it was and just say like, look, we've, we've got to work together. How has that looked uh, from where you sit uh, in your talks with with all of those various players, I mean, just just astonishing at how the various members of the ecosystem have have come together. Luke, it's just been unbelievable. Now, it started out like the Wild West, and I can remember going back to the dates that you were mentioning in in early March. And we were all moving in a million different directions. We were all getting dozens of emails. Every, every couple of days around this possibility and this, this academic had this idea, this biotech had this idea, let's do this together. And, you know, we clearly needed to, to, to consolidate activities, but the spirit was let's try to figure this out collectively. Uh, there were some really watershed events and some key moments that I'll just mention. One was in kind of mid-March as we were starting to lock down and initiate work from home policies, many of our companies. And as we were starting to think about how we could come together to figure out how to treat this disease, I remember getting a phone call from um, a good friend who at, uh, uh, was at leading um, R&D at, at BMS. His name is Rupert Vesey. And you know we had been talking pairwise to, to individuals and Rupert said, hey, let's just get a group of us together and let's just talk about how we can work together to figure this out. So we got on a call on a Sunday morning. It was Hal Barron, Rupert, Manny Pangalos at AZ, Matima Men at J&J, Rupert, and myself. And you know, we started talking about sharing best practices. How are we managing our employee base and our science and our labs? And then we started talking about the various discussions and even activities that we were starting to initiate where we could think about how we might tackle this, this awful disease. And it was almost like peanut butter and chocolate coming together. It was just, we started to realize we had to step up and figure out how we could bring our collective efforts together and create synergies. Um, So we started a group that was, we ended up calling somewhat generically the COVID R&D Alliance. Um, It started out with, you know, six or seven of the largest companies and it's since um, essentially tripled and now includes membership from 
um, essentially every large R&D company. We're really trying to enable to consolidate where necessary and enable some of the key activities that many people read about uh, across the globe. We do it quite um, behind the scenes. We're really trying to stay under the radar and not call attention to ourselves because our our focus is really trying to make everybody else better. And then where, where there are gaps, trying to fill in those gaps. All those people that you mentioned, heads of company R&D units, I mean, how how many scientists do you all together lead and, and how much how much firepower is really there in terms of budgets and everything? Oh, immense. I mean, the immense. And, I, you know, you'll see numbers that get thrown around. Um, we, you know, you'll see numbers that BARDA is throwing out to help to enable um, vaccine manufacturing, for example. We actually did a back of the envelope calculation. And today we're not involved in vaccines. We will be. We'll partner with uh, one of the leading vaccine companies because we have manufacturing capabilities and we'll, we'll leverage those to help to help the world. But even without right now incurring expenses in vaccine manufacturing, we estimate that in 2020, our spend purely focused on COVID-19 will be about a quarter of a billion dollars, um, including you know mostly clinical trial spend. We're doing a number of different um, testing, repurposing, some manufacturing costs for these medicines, and then some of the internal folks that we have, scientists that are working on it. It's really just, just immense. And you know we've taken the mindset that it's not it's not about profit. This is really about setting the world straight and doing what really only we as an industry can do. And that's the right thing here. Yeah. If, if you guys weren't doing it, um, I mean, uh, who would, I mean, we, we wouldn't be talking about getting a vaccine in 18 months or, or whatever, or, or, or these other things. Um, you know, the other key piece of context here, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, people may forget, but well, I mean, they won't forget. But like heading into this, pharma's reputation was like down in the single digits. I mean, people's trust in pharma, extremely low. Um, and have you guys talked about this amongst yourselves? Like that this is this is a chance for us to show what we're really about and just deliver the goods and not worry about making a bunch of money off of this, just like saving as many lives as we can. Yep, Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, I'll mention one other individual who I didn't note that was in that first conversation was Jay Bradner at Novartis. And I, and I bring him up just so I, A, I don't leave him out because he was an important voice early on and continues to be. But because he and, and us and a couple of other companies, Gilead, Wuxi, Schrodinger, all companies involved in early discovery have come together, not just to figure out how we can test re- repurposed molecules, but how we can make new molecules that would um, be effective in treating COVID-19 and, and potentially related viruses that might emerge in the future. It's been just an amazing effort. And Jay had a quote once, and he said, it's it's not just philanthropic what we're doing, it's strategic. And I thought about that. It's just a brilliant quote, but actually it's both. It is philanthropic and it is strategic. We need to be doing this. You know, reputation, which you're, which you're highlighting, is is an important outcome here. It's not why we do it, but but the fact that our industry's reputation rivals that of the tobacco industry or the oil industry. Firstly, it's it's disheartening to, to those of us who 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 you know lead with an ethical framework and really believe in um, the mission. Um, but secondly, it harms our business. It prevents us from optimizing what what we can out of out of our innovation. And I think that if we don't leave this pandemic 
with a, an entirely different reputation than the one that we've come in with, then we failed as an industry. We have a huge opportunity in front of us to do good and to change our reputation. And again, it's not why we're doing it, but it has to be an, a side effect of, of, of our coming out of this, a positive side effect. Well, it's about building back trust. And uh, a lot of distrust has been coursing through our world, many, many aspects of our world for a long time. Um, and I think people sometimes forget how, how important that is and what the world can look like if there's a little more trust uh, among people of goodwill. Fully agree. You know, we, we yeah, I mean, it's sad. You, I mean, you're, you're, you've been in, in involved, at least from, from where you sit in this industry for a very long time. And I'm sure you sometimes you look at, at the things that some of us do and you raise, raise your eyebrow and wonder, oh, man, how could we be doing that? How could they be doing that? But for the most part, when you look around and you deal with the people that you deal with, you see really motivated people who really want to do the right things. And it's just unfortunate that we've gotten into this position where we have to fight the rest of the world rather than partner with the world to to really make a difference. I, you know, I, I believe that if we do things correctly, the 21st century will be the century in which we learn to manage or cure every disease. I really think that science is at that point where it's, we don't understand everything, but sometimes we don't need to understand everything just through good guiding principles and mass action. I really believe that we're at a place where we could disrupt healthcare for the future of humanity. But that's only if we get our act together and if we continue to behave like we behave and if we continue to falter on our, our reputation, then that's not going to happen. But health is connected to so many other things. And that's what I, I'm actually we're recording this on a day when I'm actually feeling kind of optimistic and hopeful uh, that we're having this conversation now about race, racial disparities and injustice in America, which people have been talking about for a long time, but it hasn't really become a society wide conversation. It comes directly out of this pandemic when it happens to be, you know, affecting a whole lot of people of color disproportionately. Uh, that's been laid bare. People, it's it's obvious to people. It's in front of your eyes. Uh, 40 million people at home on work and, you know, um, stuck at home watching television and there's no sports and there's no reruns on TV, nothing but reruns on TV. Like you, you, you see something like the George Floyd and it's just like, wow, I cannot, you cannot avert your gaze. No. Whatever was going on before, like, you know, it, um, people are sitting at home and thinking about like what's gone wrong uh, in so many ways and, and, in, and beginning to think about what they can do to make the world a better place. Uh, small things, large things, doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, we all need have something to do here. How, how have you thought about this as a company leader? Because, you know, you got a diverse group of people that work for you. And you got a diverse group of people that you're trying to serve, that being patients. Um, what, what have the last 10 days or so been like for you as you've thought about this? Well, um, I mean, just just bewildering in some ways. I, by the way, I, I had a big smile as you were walking, walking me, leading me to that question. And your hope, Luke, is infectious. I love it. You know, and that's what we need. We need hope and we need resiliency. And we also need to realize that we have a huge problem 
and it's not going to go away overnight. I was reflecting also that, you know, in the mornings that I run on my treadmill, I actually scroll through my iPad. I've developed a, a tact for <laughs> reading slide presentations while I'm running on the treadmill. Like, I'll teach you the, the, the tools someday if you're ever interested. But then halfway through, I get too tired and I flip on taped CNN. And it's been amazing over the last three months because there's been just one news topic, and that's been the pandemic until the last 10 days, right? It's taken this social unrest to displace the COVID pandemic from the lead story. But of course, as you're, as you're framing, they're, they're entirely related. You know, the, the, what we're seeing through this pandemic, just, just the simple facts, when you look at the, the percentage of um, Blacks and African-Americans who are, are unemployed now versus their white counterparts, when you look at the percentage of Blacks and African-Americans who are uh, infected with COVID-19 versus their white counterparts, you're talking twice as many relative to their um, incidence in the population. It's just absolutely egregious. And then, of course, events like the more recent events that we've seen with George Floyd and others just continue to smoke out the challenges that we face. And it's just been a really um, incredible 10 days in, in, in both bad and, and, and good ways, as you're highlighting. I think the bad is obvious. You know, we just have so much that we still need to learn. And we have so much that we still need to do in this society to smoke out racism and to create true, true equity. I mean, it's the, the, these issues are just so, so deep seated and they're not going to go away quickly, but they require us to act quickly. We have to act now. Now, internally, we, we have an organization that has, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's really predicated on a very strong value system. And we really focus on our employees and we focus on patients. Um, but even we have a long way to go in terms of making a difference and in terms of driving equity, both racial, gender, you know, in so many different planes. And I will say that it's an epiphany that I've had. I've always thought that I've um, been open-minded, inclusive, and equitable. But I also realized that I, I, am, I come from a very privileged white male background. And it's only been recently that I've, I've realized, I mean, epiphany really is the right word, that I've realized how different my experiences are relative to that of an aspiring female um, or relative to someone in an underrepresented minority like an African-American. And I don't know that I'll ever fully understand um, what it means to be in, in their shoes. But I know that there's an immense amount that I can do to help and uh, an immense more that I have to learn. And, and we all have to step it up, Luke, because, man, there's a lot to do. Well, we can, you can listen. <laughs> That's First uh, and foremost, one, yeah. One place to start. Um, I saw that uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Ramona Sequeira, posted a, a pretty heartfelt blog post there on LinkedIn about the, the wrenching um, conversations that have occurred at the company. Um, are you, what, what are some of the concrete steps? Like, so, so you can listen, you can hear out people who've had a different experience. It's a place to start. Uh, but what are some of the, the steps, the things that you can do as a, as a person, like with a lot of, a lot of power and influence? Well, so, so Ramona is our, the head of our US, U.S. business unit and she runs our, our global commercial group. And she's a really just amazing individual and a very close colleague. Together, um, right at the front end of the, these events, she and I 
and the other leaders that are based in uh, Boston sent out a note to our organization. And then Ramona followed that with the blog post that you're mentioning when she, she mentioned some of her own personal reactions to this. And it was quite touching. And I would recommend that your podcast viewers um, try to find that. Uh, it's, on, it's on LinkedIn, as you mentioned. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, terrific, terrific. Because I just really was blown away and, you know, really literally tears, tears in my eyes. Um, but I think the most important thing, firstly, and you keep saying this, is listen and learn and don't pretend that we have all the answers because we don't. I think that's first and foremost. The second is that this, th- these events tend to um, inspire so many of us but we lack the endurance to carry forward what we need to carry forward. And what's so important for all of us, but especially as leaders, is that we carry this forward. So the first thing that we did was we actually connected as a leadership team with our internal Black Leadership Council. And we had a, an hour and a half um, uh, convocation on Friday where we heard stories and we talked about some of the tactical plans that we hope to put in place. We tried not to get too detailed because I think that would have sounded um, a little bit too reactive, but we really talked about the kinds of things that, um, that we can do. And I think first and foremost, it's, it's, it's creating a mindset around, um, and this will sound trite, but it's just by far and away the most important is creating, creating a culture and a mindset around inclusion, diversity, and equity. First and foremost, thinking about your talent base, thinking about teams. And when you put teams together, how do you bring in elements of inclusion and diversity? And then importantly for us, as an industry, how do we reflect the diversity of our patient populations in what we do? And fundamentally, what we do is we run clinical trials. And when you look at representation in clinical trials, we do well in terms of gender diversity, but we do very poorly in terms of representing um, some of the um, underrepresented minorities like Blacks and African Americans. So that's, that's low-hanging fruit. We can change that um, overnight. And that's something that I'm, I and my leadership team are very committed to doing. What about hiring? For sure. It's not just hiring. It's creating an organization that embraces diversity and, that, 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 and inclusion that promotes um, with a diversity angle. And that certainly when you're looking at the, the talent pool, you're making extra efforts to really reach out. Always hiring the top talent, the best person for the role, but really searching and trying to find individuals who bring elements of diversity. And by the way, it's not just for diversity's sake. It's because you know studies have shown over and over and again that a more diverse and inclusive company is a higher performing company. Sometimes that best person went to Cal State Los Angeles and not Harvard. This requires like looking more deeply, looking differently at people uh, and what they bring to the table. Sometimes grit and resilience comes from uh, in surprising places. Absolutely. And it's not it's not simple because the, when you especially when you get to the most senior levels, you know, when you start to when you're in more mid-level or junior levels in, in science and biology in particular, there's great gender representation. And actually, we, we have more than 50 percent um, women, I'd say, in, in many of our middle manager roles. Um, when you get to more senior roles in organizations, the pool size for whom you're going to select from will overrepresent white males. And so you really need to be purposeful in trying to identify those individuals who, who represent the diversity that you're seeking. You need to do things like if you're going to take a shot at a stretch 
assignment for somebody and, and, and bump somebody up one and a half or two spots in an organization, you know, really think about making that for someone who's bringing in an element of diversity because you'll find a much larger, larger candidate pool there. Uh, there are ways to do this. Uh, lots of organizations do it. Um, we each can do our part. Um, I, I'll just say for myself, as the guy who runs my own platform, a newsletter and a podcast and other things, um, it's open to diverse voices. And um, I want to bring them out, encourage them, help them um, express themselves. And that's one thing I can do and uh, have been doing and will continue to do. I, uh, and I know that there are lots of things that you can do in your position. And uh, the thing that I'll say for, for darn sure is that I will keep on this uh, long after the news cycle passes. Yeah, great. And that's what you're, you're getting to that point, too, that, oh, if we all just, you know, wake up, but it's only waking up for two weeks uh, that's not going to solve the problem. Not going to solve the problem, and it needs to be active. You know, if we if we all agree to this, but then aren't actively pushing forward with metrics, with you know, with with the intent to make a difference, then we'll fall back to to where we were months or years ago. This cycle is repeated again and again, and we have to stop it. Andy, I uh, I trust that you are going to follow through on this, and I look forward to talking with you about it um, in next year or year after that. Um, thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Thank you very much for having me, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.